This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. We continue our series, Abound, Abound in Love, Holiness, and Hope, from the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. And we see in Acts 17 the formation of this church through Paul's preaching in the synagogues for three weeks and then being forced to leave Thessalonica for his safety from the church that he just planted. And they received faith through the proclamation of the gospel, and they were living it out. They were working out their faith. They were laboring love, and they were holding on to hope in Jesus. And the church remains steadfast in their faith. And Paul urges them to abound, press forward, don't get comfortable to increase in these things. Don't become stale so that they wouldn't turn back their old ways of idolatry. But while the church is working to remain faithful to the Lord, the enemy, Satan, is trying to divide, is trying to create doubts and derail the church. He does not want to see progress. He does not want to see the kingdom advance. And Paul left Thessalonica in the middle of the night. And without him there, the the non-Christians in the city started to, to raise questions about this Paul figure. They started questioning his purpose, his character, his motive, and his message. There was opposition from outside of the church. This wasn't happening inside of the church in Thessalonica. This was happening outside. But due to the newness of the church, Paul felt it was necessary to answer these accusations with truth. And we see how Paul is defending his visit to Thessalonica. We see him defending his ministry, his conduct, his character, For the sake of the gospel of God, as it says in verse 2. He's saying, church, you are a witness of these things. You saw and experienced my conduct within my ministry. I didn't come on my behalf. I didn't come to, to please man, but I came to please God. That's our title for today's sermon, Pleasing God. And we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first 16 verses here. And this is our big idea for today. Our motive to please God leads to minister to others like Jesus. Our motive to please God leads us to minister to others like Jesus. And we'll divide this text into two parts. We'll look at how Paul ministered to the Thessalonians. And when I say Paul ministered, it means his team, his team of uh, Timothy and uh, and Silas, his co-workers. And then the second part is how the Thessalonians responded to them, how they responded to Paul. And as we study these these verses, it's important to interpret the text appropriately and ask questions of who wrote it and to who was it addressed to and why, what's the immediate and the broader context, the historical, cultural, what's the bigger picture of this. It's a part of interpreting the text, but we can't read this letter and automatically conclude, oh, this is just for vocational pastors, I'm good. Make sure Pastor Robin and Pastor Ashley and Tim is reading about this one. Make sure they listen to this. No, we must see the broader painting of God's overarching purpose in sending Jesus and his accomplishment on the cross with application to our current circumstances. Meaning when we must be open to the Spirit's work in our lives when we open God's words. And at times, and I catch myself listening and applying God's word in other people's lives. But this week, man, God really worked in my heart through this text. And and though Paul is defending his ministry, let's define ministry for what it is. The Greek word for ministry 
defines this as to serve or to serve as a slave. To serve as a slave. The New Testament ministry is seen as a service to God and to his people in Jesus' name. And though Paul models ministry and ministers to the Thessalonians, we must always go to Jesus first, the true model for us. He came not to be served, but to serve, for this pleases God. I mean, I believe we've been all called to ministry. We all have a ministry. Some of us have been and will be called to vocational ministry, full-time ministry. But as followers of Jesus, man, we're called to serve and minister to one another. That being said, we look at how Paul ministered to the Thessalonians as he is defending his mission and his motive and his message. And we've got five ways that Paul ministered. The first one is he ministered with boldness. Paul ministered with boldness. Let's read the first two verses of chapter 2 again. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul and his co-workers, they, weren't, they, weren't, they didn't come into Thessalonica after a two-week vacation or a conference. Uh, he was coming after their visit from Philippi where they had suffered beforehand. They were shamefully mistreated. They were harmed physically. And he didn't go into much detail about this because the beginning of the verse says, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, but we find the, the details in Acts 16, uh, verses 22 to 24. Acts 16, verses 22 to 24 says this, the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. That's the visit that they just had. Now they're coming into Thessalonica. And so why does this background of Acts and Philippi matter? Why does Paul even include this in chapter 2? Because even though they were in a circumstance that was subject to abuse and shame and harm, they still, they still proclaimed the same message of the gospel. They didn't water it down. They didn't make it offensive. They didn't shy away from the risk, but they continued the work boldly. Human tendency at times is to remain neutral. But the gospel isn't neutral. It can be offensive. There are things in here that will be offending to the world, that will be offensive to us. The Bible talks about abortion and justice and sexual orientation and money and uh, sexual immorality. These are things that we don't really like to hear about. We don't like to talk about these things. But we must. The gospel of God is offensive because it calls out our sin. It calls out our selfishness, our messiness, our ugliness. But the gospel of God, as verse 2 says, is the message of God. It doesn't leave us hopeless in our sin. The gospel of God allows us a way out. It allows us a way out of the bondage of sin through Jesus. Paul wasn't bold in his message. He had boldness in God. That's what it says. He had boldness in God to declare God's message. 
God, help us to be bold in our words. God, help us to be bold in our thoughts and our actions. Don't let our current circumstances dictate our view and our proclamation of the message. And we can find boldness in God. That's where we find our boldness in. Not through seminary, not through practice. I'm sure this helps, but our boldness is ultimately found in God to live out his message. Paul ministered with a pure motive. That's our second way, the second way that he ministered. He ministered with a pure motive. Let's read verses 3 to 6. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Uh, unfortunately, some people during this time use religion and God as a means, as a means of making money, as a means of gaining the double P's, power and popularity. And the noise outside of the church in Thessalonica was attacking the motive of Paul's visit. And so Paul has to defend it and share his motive and purpose. He's saying, man, it wasn't to deceive. It wasn't to please you. It was to please God. That's why I came. And unfortunately, today the church still faces the danger of the double P's power and popularity. The church still faces the problem today where leaders of the faith, where pastors are ministering with an impure motive, resulting in a lot of people getting hurt and even stepping away from the faith. It seems like the church is getting, getting in the way of the church. And you can preach the right message for the wrong reasons, for the wrong, for the wrong motive. And I acknowledge that our people here Today, this morning, they're still healing from those wounds. And I wish that didn't happen to you. And I'm sorry that that has happened. This isn't a new problem in the church. Paul talks about in Philippians 1, 15 through 17. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. So what do we do? How do we fix this? How do we move forward? We go to the Word. In chapter 4, verse 6 in 1 Thessalonians, it says, The Lord is the avenger of all these things. The Lord is the avenger of all these things. I can't wait for Dave to preach this verse and talk about how Jesus is the true avenger in the Marvel movies. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Not pastors, not elders, not programs, but I will do it. Amen? He will do it. Jesus will do it. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As one author states, scandal rocks the church. It brings the gospel into disrepute. It can close doors for gospel work, but it can never frustrate Christ's sovereign power and unchanging purpose to build his church. And we can find peace and rest knowing that Jesus always will be in charge of his church. I find comfort in that. 
Paul's aim was not one of impurity, but Paul had a pure motive not to please man, but to please God. This is the call of the follower of Jesus, to please God. And as soon as our motive is about pleasing people over pleasing God, then we become idolaters. And it's so sneaky. But God tests our hearts, meaning he examines our hearts. He knows our motives before, he, before we know our motives. God examine our hearts. And every word that is preached from this pulpit will be held accountable by the Lord. Every motive that pushes ministry forward will be examined and tested by God. The entire reason that Paul is here in the first place is because of his obedience to the call from God and his desire to please God. God cares about the motives. God cares about our motives. The motive of our ministries is greater than the number of people that attend in our ministries. The motive of our ministries is greater than the results of our ministry and the strategy of our ministries. The motive of our ministry should be one, to please God. And again, this, is, this isn't just for vocational ministry. It definitely is, but not just for vocational ministry. This is for all of us. Are we doing what we're doing to please God? Is that question a question that we ask ourselves in our decision-making process? Does this please God? I think we can avoid a lot of hurt and frustration and isolation if we ask this question, does this decision please God? And it's a difficult question to, to ask, and it's even more difficult to answer truthfully. Paul continues to say, and we didn't come with words of flattery. One commentary defines flattery as another form of lying. It means saying one thing to God with our lips while our hearts are far from it. It deals with manipulation for the sake of gain. Paul saying, my visit wasn't for my gain, but his gain. It wasn't for my glory, but it was for God's glory. It was to please God. This is so crucial in our ministry and in our lives. Does this decision please God? Third one, Paul ministered to the Thessalonians with love ministered with love. Let's look at 7 and 8. But we were gentle. You might have a footnote that says infants. But we were infants among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul introduces uh, family metaphors in these verses, right? Infants and mother, father. And there's a difference between an infant and a toddler. I think Caden right now is a toddfint in the middle between an infant and a toddler. But Paul is describing his innocence like an infant, right? Infants aren't manipulative or deceiving. They're just there. Paul ministered to the church with love like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, loving like a mother. We celebrated our, our anniversary last week, and we visited the church where we got married at Hammersmith Chapel. 
uh, in Elmhurst, and uh, we read through our ceremony and was uh, reminded of our wedding looked like and what it meant to us. And the part of our wedding and weddings in general that mean a lot to me uh, is when the bride or the groom, they take the flower and they give it to their mom. Mm-mm. That's when the ugly crying happens for me. That's when I don't want you to look at me, when that flower is given to the mom. And of course, when Sarah started walking down, I was crying. Well, when the bridesmaid started walking, I was tearing up. It was already over. But man, when I had to give my flower to my mom as I start my own family, I was reminded of the deep love for my mom, the nurturing, gentle, selfless, always sacrificial love of a mom. And Paul was trying to express that here. I didn't come to you as a project to work on. I didn't come to just convert you, to influence you. I came to you in love. I came to you in gentleness, ready to share myself, to serve you, because you have become so beloved to us. And do we love, or we don't typically see this emotional warmth expressed by Paul, but we see it here. Paul lets it out here. Let's examine ourselves. Do we see it in ourselves? Do we even love the people we are ministering to? In the workplace, in our families, in our church, in our neighbors, is the mission sourced by love? Is it founded on love? Or are we seeing it as a project? Are we seeing it as a to-do list? We model our ministry, our service off of God's love for us. God's mission is rooted in love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And part of serving and ministering well is loving others. God doesn't see us as something that he's working on. God doesn't see us as someone who has gone too far out of bounds from God's love and plan. There is no such thing. And God's love for you is still warm, even if you're so distant to him right now. It hasn't changed. It's not based on the number of times you come to church or don't come to church. It's not based on what we do or what we've done. But God's love for you is expressed through the sending of his own son, Jesus, who came to take on the sin of sinners like, a sin of sinners like you and me, who came to die on the cross for sinners like you and me so that we would have eternal life, so that we would have a relationship with God the Father. Our ministry, our service ought to be rooted in love. Not love that we can manufacture, but love that is from God. Do we love the people we're ministering to? That might be the hardest part about ministry. Loving them well, loving them like Jesus. Paul ministered to the Thessalonians with diligence. That's our fourth one. Paul ministered with diligence. Let's look at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul didn't want to be a financial burden to the church. And so he didn't take any money from the church of Thessalonica. 
I was thinking of maybe skipping this verse for the sake of time, but no. We've got to minister with boldness, with a pure motive, with love, with diligence, meaning persistently, carefully. And this ties in with, with verse 5, with the pretext of greed. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy worked both day and night. While he ministered to this new church plant, they worked with their hands as a, as a tent maker, as 1 Corinthians 4.12 says. And they did, it, did this to be self-sufficient financially. But the reason he did this, why he worked so persistently and carefully, was the sake of not being a burden to this church. Because we see in 1 Corinthians 9 how Paul defends his right as an apostle to receive financial support. He had that right to receive it. In fact, we see in Philippians 4, 15-16 how the church in Philippi sent Paul help for his needs in Thessalonica. But Paul did receive help from the church that he just came from. And the point here is not if a pastor should, be, should or should not be bivocational or not. But ministering to others requires giving up our rights for the sake of the gospel. Are we willing to give up our rights for the sake of others knowing Jesus? Are we willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of others being loved like Jesus? Are we willing to become less so that he may become greater? It requires persistent work. It requires diligence and careful work. It's hard work. how Paul ministered to the Thessalonians. Verse 5, he ministered to them with instruction. He ministered to them with instructions. Let's read verses 11 through 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Here Paul uses the family metaphor, like a father with his children. And in the cultural context of his time, uh, Paul associated being father as a role to command and to comfort, to exhort and to encourage. Paul had ambition. He had a desire for the church to remain faithful and to abound. When we minister to others, our aim is their, their growth, their success, their repentance, and their faithfulness. And for this to happen, instruction is required. And more importantly, how this instruction is given is so important, is so crucial. Right? It's, it's to command, to appeal and exhort and to request something. Like a father telling his, ch- his child, I need you to do this. But then also it's to provide comfort and to encourage and console to know the truth and to comfort the child and have ambition and wanting them to succeed. Paul is commanding them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And, and Paul really likes this word, walk, right? when talking about following Jesus. He uses it 32 times in his letter. And when we're talking about walking, we're not just talking about our spiritual walk, our Sunday walk, our walk in our neighborhood, He's talking about your entire life. Walking is how you live your life. 
He's saying, live your life in a manner that corresponds to the character and commands of God. And he doesn't go into a list of commands from God in this verse. Later on, uh, in chapter 4 and 5, he gets there. But Paul sets a goal before them. It says, live your life consistent with the character of God. Live your life abounding and reflecting on the holiness of God and his love and the hope that he offers. I mean, if we, if we stop there, if I, if I just end the sermon, man, a lot of us would leave out of here feeling discouraged, feeling like we got a to-do list, feeling ashamed, feeling guilty, feeling unworthy to even walk with God, unworthy to even go to God. How can we sinners walk in a manner worthy of God? Our Father's role is not only to command, but also is to provide comfort through instruction. Because the last part of this verse 12 changes everything. Verse 12 says, the end of it says, who calls you? God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God is the one who is calling, to, calling you to himself. He's saying, live a life that is worthy of God, but this doesn't earn salvation. This is a response of the divine call of God in your life. It's a response of the graceful call of God in your life. It's a response to the loving call of God. As one commentary states that God's call is always effective. God's call is always effective. Effective. And we're ending every service with these two verses in this series. In this series. And it's from chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. He ends a letter like that, so we're going to end our service like that. We're not ending yet. I'm going to put your notes away. He says, Now may the God of peace <clears throat> himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. God's call is always effective in your life. If he calls you to something, he will do it. He is faithful. Five twenty-three, twenty-four. God's call is always effective. He's calling you to himself to know him and to be like him. That's why you and I could walk in a manner that imperfectly reflects the perfect character of God because the Spirit of God is at work. And God doesn't just call us once. It's a continual call, a walk of self-denial. It's an ongoing call that must be responding with an ongoing response. To lead a life that's worthy of God. And so this next section, we'll see how the Thessalonians responded to Paul. They responded by accepting God's word. They responded by accepting God's word. Look at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. And they received the word, not as Paul's word, but God's word. 
And when we open God's word or we hear God's word faithfully being preached, we're not hearing the advice of the preacher. We're hearing God's instructions to us. And the way that we get to respond to God's call in our lives is by meditating on God's word. It's doing this, gathering on Sunday to hear his word and let the spirit make it effective. It's gathering to hear the good shepherd's voice, not my voice. He's got a way better voice. That is God's business. The word of God, which is in work, in work in you believers. And as one theologian states it, the Thessalonians not only took the gospel, but they also took to it. That we receive God's word with our ears, but we accept it with our hearts. Has there been an internal acceptance of God's word and his rule in our lives? Is there a truth in God's word that you heard but not accepted? Because they heard it, or they, they received it because they heard it, and because they heard it, they chose to receive it, accept it. Is there a truth in God's word that you've heard but not accepted? We have to be in the word for God's word to work in us. So this is what I want us to do this week. This week, let's, let's be in the word. Just this week. I'm not asking you to start a reading plan. There's no commitment to the end of the year. Just this week, let's be in God's word and be reminded of who God is, what he's done, and let God work. Maybe I'll ask you to do the same next week. I don't know. But can we do that? Can we be in God's word this week? Can I get some nods? God's work do a work that he does in our hearts so that we can respond by accepting it. The second way that Thessalonians responded is by imitating Christ. Imitating Christ. And Paul speaks of suffering and affliction here, right, which is coming up next week in our series. Alvin is preaching about affliction. And Paul is, encourages them of their imitation of other churches who shared in these sufferings due to their faith. Paul is explaining that the church in Thessalonica was part of the broader picture that God is painting. Not only did the churches suffer, but Jesus suffered. And this meant to give comfort and hope knowing that we, when we suffer due to our call and our desire to please God, we connect with our union with Jesus. Do we realize that suffering is a part of following Jesus? It's a part of imitating Christ. And when we are at our lowest, God is not looking down at us or trying to destroy us. God is trying to save us. There's redemption in our suffering. It's a part of imitating Jesus. And we're all called into ministry. We all have a ministry. We're all commissioned by God to go. And so how are we responding to God's call? How are you responding to God's call in your life? It's an ongoing call. Is your desire to 
to live a life about yourself to please yourself or is it to please others or do you have a desire to please God? And know this, we can, <clears throat> we can never please God outside of Jesus Christ. It is impossible to please God without faith. We can't miss that. We can't please God by ourselves. We need Jesus. But Jesus came to do the will of God, and, and he actually walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And after his baptism, the voice of God the Father from heaven said this, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father was and is fully pleased with his Son, Jesus, who is sinless, whose whose motives are always pure, who is full of grace and love, who is the image of the invisible God. And when he says, come to me, Man, it's out of love, it's with a pure motive. He wants you there. And it's within that love that Jesus went to the cross to die for those who would believe in him so that he would satisfy the wrath of God. And we contribute to the, to the wrath of God. All we bring to the table is our sin. And that's exactly why Jesus came to take on our sin, to defeat death through his death and resurrection. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's our faith in Christ that unites us with Christ. It's our faith in Christ that allows us to be seen righteous before God. It's our faith in Christ that we can Say that we are children of the God of the universe. It is our faith in Christ that allows us to please God. It's not about what we do, how we serve, but our faith in God, faith in Christ, because we know that God is fully pleased in Jesus, and Jesus invites us to experience that peace, that relationship that Jesus has with, the, with God the Father. The truth is that God is pleased with us right now if we are in Christ. Regardless of what you've done, where you're going, what you will do, if you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, that he is Lord, and you repented from sin, God is saying, this is, this is my child. I am pleased with him. I am pleased with her. He's mine. She's mine. It's our faith in Christ allows us to please God through Christ. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.